Okay, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 158 with my guest, Wayne Bernard. Wayne is a steel drummer. Uh, He also works for the New York uh, Fire Department in their emergency response division. And he is the band captain of Peso, or Pan Evolution Steel Orchestra. And I met Wayne when he was playing lead with the Brooklyn Steel Orchestra in Trinidad in 2015. Uh, we have a wide-ranging conversation, uh, mostly about Wayne's background, but we talk about the current um, situation right now with policing in the United States, and I just get his thoughts. He's a good guy, um, and I hope you enjoy this conversation, because I certainly did. All right, we'll talk to you soon. All right, Wayne Bernard. Well, Wayne Bernard, I, I appreciate you doing this. Um, we've known each other for a second, um, I think since 2015, and as you know, I, w- I was I went for a little walk before we we talked, and I was like, "What am I going to ask Wayne?" And I was like, "Why do I feel like I have to ask Wayne anything? Let me just <laughs> ask Wayne about himself." Um, but before we do that, I just want folks to know a little bit about how you and I met, like why you and I are so friendly with each other. Um, I met you in 2015, actually mm-hmm. in Trinidad, I think, um, with BSO. I think we may have crossed paths in Brooklyn during a panorama. Um, like we may have just yeah, crossed, crossed in the street have, yeah. and been like, hello. Yeah. Um, but then you were playing in the lead line with, with the Brooklyn Steel Orchestra. Kendall, Mark, and Odie, uh, Kendall Williams, Mark Brooks, and Odie Franklin were arranging a tune called Off Feeling for the ICP competition in Trinidad, which was in August of 2015. Um, Brooklyn Steel Orchestra, I would love for you to talk more about that. But it was, for, the, for lack of a better word, it was sort of the all-star group of all of the bands <laughs> in Brooklyn of like players who wanted to do something extra, you know. Um, and I was asked by Kendall and Mark and Odie to drill a little bit in Trinidad. And I saw you in the front lead line and I was like, <laughs> I don't know this guy. Um, but sort of, <laughs> sort of like a teacher 101 is like, find the person in the room who is clearly demonstrating what it is you want out of everybody else and simply compliment them. And nine times out of 10 that everybody else, that's like a way to show everybody <laughs> how to act, you know, or how to sort of commit mm-hmm. to something. And I, and I pointed you out. I was like, I don't know this dude, but everybody needs to be like him. <laughs> And from that point, um, I feel like you and I have, you know, it's not like we hang out every day. Yeah. It's not like we hang out every day, but I feel like right. I can say stuff to you and you can say stuff to me and there's no, ju- no judgment. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, we've sort of crossed paths a bunch of, since then. You you were then sort of one of the founding members of Pan Evolution Steel Orchestra, which was a new group That's, that in your, yeah, in, your, in your first outing at New York Panorama came in second, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. Um, and you know, but past that, I think I, I, you know, I've heard a little bit about like where you work, where you're from, what was it, what what your upbringing was like. Um, but I don't actually know the details. So I'm curious. <laughs> I would like to get to BSO and Peso, and it's totally up to you whether or not we talk about the sort of current stuff going on in society. Um, I'm of two mm-hmm. minds. I'm willing to wall this off, and we can just talk about Pan and not feel like we have to talk about anything else. But where. Wherever you want to start, you know, <laughs> wherever but, you want to. But I just sort of want to leave that agenda up to you as we progress. If we get there, great. If we don't, let's not feel like we have to. Um, okay. But, um, but my first sort of prompt is like, can you tell me a little bit about like baby Wayne Bernard? What, what, what uh, where'd you grow up? What were your folks like? Like, how did you get into music? Uh, just give me some sort of place to start, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, sure. Um, so um, Wayne Bernard, of course. Um, Born and raised in Brooklyn. Um, my mother is Wilmer and my father is Stephen. Uh, my mother is from Trinidad and my father is from Grenada. Unfortunately, my father passed away um, in my teenage years. Um, for me, Pan really started as something that I used to watch my sister do growing up. Mm. Um, she 
involved in Kasim at a very young age. Um, and I used to go out a lot of times on a lot of their, their playouts or their gigs in the summertime. They A lot of times they would have, it could be a Friday, or Saturday, or Sunday. So Friday nights they would spend practicing. Saturday they could do two or three gigs. Sunday they could do two gigs. Uh, their stage side was, it was really big to me at that time, you know, watching them had anywhere from like 25, 30 members. And uh, What's a, sorry, to, sorry to interrupt. What's a stage side? Just for mm-hmm. folks who don't maybe know what that lingo. And I'm going to ask some dumb questions that you're like, wait a minute, you know the answer to that. Like, but for <laughs> folks who maybe don't understand, there's a yeah, panorama band. There's a panorama band and there's a stage side band. Can you explain the difference? Uh, the, the panorama band is the uh, competition side. It can range anywhere from minimum 45 players to 100 players max. Um, your stage side would be a smaller contingent of the Panorama Band, which would consist of your core players. Uh, they will work throughout the year. They would do a lot of um, gigs, fundraise for the for the group. Uh, they would do events that would help um, push the group financially and support a lot of the endeavors that they would look to do throughout the year. So um, the stage side is that group, to me, of uh, players. That's the core members, and they keep the band really running throughout the year. Mm. So at that time, watching Kasim's uh, stays out of their core group, um, they were really they were they were led by um, Mr. Arden Herbert, which is their musical director at the time. Uh, they used to do like a lot of gigs. Sometimes they would have gigs that actually kind of um, con- conflict with each other with time when you look at it. So um, they may have a gig like in the Bronx at 3 p.m. and they would have had a, a street fair in Brooklyn at the same time. So what would end up happening? They would end up splitting the stage side. So they had like members that were versatile on mo- multiple instruments, people that could play a tenor pan or they could drum, stuff like that. So they would split the group in half. They would send one group to Brooklyn, they would send one group to the Bronx, and they would do gigs like that. So uh, I used to watch them a lot growing up. And I remember I, I wasn't really into pan. I didn't I didn't have a love for pan and it was something my parents used to be like, you know, why don't you get into it? Um, why don't you try it out? And so like, ah, it's just not really for me. And I don't know what it was about this one gig. I remember they did at um, Bird Keats Mass Camp. Um, they had a thing with Bird Keats Mass Camp. They used to play there like every Sunday. And Josh, it was just like that day something clicked. Mm-hmm. It was just watching, watching them go through the set. Um, and I said, wow, these guys are really good said, wow, this is amazing. And I think after that 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 gig, after that day, I, I looked at my mother and my father and I said, you know, I think I want to play. And um, of course, they signed me up in Kasim's program. They used to have class programs and they still do. Today. Um, they had a class one, they had a class two, and then they had the state side. Of course, mm-hmm. the ultimate goal was to join and be a part of the state side. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted. So what I didn't really understand at that young tender age is that well, I had to start in the class. So I had to learn the basics. I had to learn um, about the instruments, about the history of, of the art form, about um, Kasim's history, um, which they do have rich history um, in Brooklyn and in the community. So um, who was running the class? Who was running that Kasim class? I know, like, does Travis DaVinci run it right now? Yeah, Travis DaVinci Roberts, he runs it. Um, Lakeisha, I think Rico and a couple of other people there are involved. Lakeisha's um, name keeps coming up. I feel like I need to take lessons with Lakeisha. Everybody I talk to is just like, yeah, she's Lakeisha's so crazy. She'll tear you to part. She'll tear you apart. <laughs> <laughs> she's a real good player, you know? Um, so at that time, uh, I think Chin 
um, and another guy named Robert. They were um, they were running the class at that time, and um, they taught the basics. Um, they taught like several scales, um, basic music theory, and at the time, I think they taught maybe two or three of the Casim Core Stateside songs, which is like "Stand by Me" and "In the Mood," and um, of course, I got that down um, with practice. And after a while, I was just like, I felt like, you know, I was just there and I wanted more, of course. I wanted to be with the with the, with the the squad. <laughs> well, it was the state side. And then, yeah. um, I remember coming home to my mother and was just like, oh, I didn't know that this is what it was going to be about. Like, I, I wanted to go, I want to go out on gigs and I wanted to play. And um, we're just in class every week mm-hmm. and we're basics and we have two or three songs and that's it. So um, I think after a while for me, um, I was able to transition to another music program and another group, which was um, run by um, Uncle Nali or Nali Nicholas. Um, I don't know if you know Is Nali it, Nicholas. Yeah, K-N-O-L-L-Y. Yeah. I, I don't know him personally, but I through Facebook, I think we've messaged right. him. So his his dad was running a program at that time in, um, in 94. Hmm. And... Um, in the winter of 94, my sister ended up transitioning with me to this program, and we ended up um, working that out, learning some of the basics, um, same thing that I was learning at Casim. And it was in the spring, they kind of joined this band, which was Harmony Steel Orchestra at the time. Mm-hmm. So during that spring season of 94, we ended up working with Harmony, learning some songs, and becoming part of their stage side and doing gigs. And I think that's... For me, it just kind of just took off from there. Can I ask you, I mean, when you mentioned that, like, you wanted to be with your squad, I mean, I, that, that's, like, you, there's a weird feeling, and I, I don't know whether it's a specific thing to steel bands, but I feel like this is, like, a general feeling that most teams have, whether you're, you know, the Bulls in the 90s or you're Casim in the, you know, in the 2000s, like, <laughs> yeah. like, there's a, there's some part of your DNA that lights up when you're, when you're with a crew of people. I mean, I, mm-hmm. for me, it's like going to Skiffle Bunch, being in that pan yard in Trinidad and like some vagrant comes in the yard and the whole, the whole band just like <laughs> swarms. And it's like, I don't want yeah. that to happen. That's not, it's not something I, it's not enjoyable to watch that sort of thing happen, but you mm-hmm. feel taken care of. Like just as a person, right. you feel like somebody is always looking out for you despite all your faults, despite the things you may say that are inappropriate or that are, mm-hmm. you don't understand. Like there's something about that. And I'm curious for you as a young kid, like, um, like I didn't have really have that, that specific feeling until I went to Trinidad and I was like, Oh, okay. you know, but for you as a young kid, like, I feel like you're sort of fortunate to have had exposure to that idea at a young mm-hmm. kid. Like how old were you when that happened? Uh, I was 13. Yeah. I mean, I was 22. Yeah. Like you had nine <laughs> years of a jump on me in terms of what that feels like. And, um, you know, right. there's, there's, there's talk right now in society about like, you know, Uh, how communities need to function. And I'm just kind of curious, like the steel band in Brooklyn, I feel like is this ecosystem that doesn't exist very many places elsewhere in the world, uh, let alone uh, specifically the United States. It's not like you can go to like um, Des Moines, Iowa, and there's an equally thriving pan scene. Can you talk a little bit about like just culturally for you, why the steel band in particular is an important hub? I mean, it feels like the most obvious question, but like, why is that important in Brooklyn? What is it about the steel band community in Brooklyn? Why does it exist there and nowhere else? Uh, the steel band community in Brooklyn and the importance of it. Um, t- 
to me is 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 is, is very important. Uh, it helps the community in in a sense of you know it gives uh, extended family to a lot of the young men and young women that are growing up. Mm. Um, a place to go, people to be around that's that's the same age to to share laughs with, share memories with, to build bonds with. Um, when you look at the steel band community in Brooklyn right now, a lot of it is bonds that have started over five, ten years, and the adulthood still relishes today and it's still ongoing, um, where people now, they have their own extension of their own family, and now these two individuals that started a bond, let's just say 10 years ago in a pan yard, still have a bond now, and they have their own personal families and their families now have a bond from something that started 10 years ago in a pan yard. And I mean, I think the, the steel band culture and way of life in New York is so important because with so much going on in the communities right now, it's just like a place where people can go to not only just learn about the art form, but to also be able to get away, if you understand what I'm saying, that sometimes we all need a mental escape. Even when you what's going on today in, in society, that music, that camaraderie, that togetherness, that, that family, um, gives you a mental escape, whether it's from just society, whether it's from your, your personal life at home, whether it's work, it just gives you that, that, that time away. And sometimes you do need that. You know, you get that laugh, you get that bond, you get that, those memories, you get that, oh, you remember that such and such when, uh, such and such put down that piece and we couldn't get it. And then, you know, they, they decided to scrap it and give maybe option A and option B. And then we were like, no, 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 let's let's keep it with option, you know, the first option that we had. You know, it, it gives you so much to look forward to and, and you know, to look back on. And it's, it's, it's really important. Like a lot of people may, you know, look down on it. But when you really look back on the steel band culture, it, it gives so much back to to the individuals that um put time into it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I just didn't, I mean, again, like I've only had, I've only been intersecting with the, the Brooklyn pan world since about 2010 or so since I met Kendall, you know, and Crossfire <laughs> and Dougie were the first, my first sort of doorway into that whole scene. And I was like, Oh right. man, like this is, this is amazing to me. And over the last 10 years, I mean, I, I this is a, again, I feel like I'm asking a silly question here, but, but I have felt in the steel band, um, Never, I've never felt safer, and I don't mean to say in the sort of like uh, hippy dippy, like or I need a safe space. And don't <laughs> don't ever challenge me that sort of thing, because the right. steel the steel band as an ensemble as a group, it's not like it's not uncomplicated. Like people fight, people argue, people say things uh, you know that they don't mean sometimes. But I've never been in a steel band where someone has done something that somebody else disagrees with, and you all kick them out, and they're never allowed back. Maybe it's happened, but I feel like there's. There's a lot of accountability within a steel band, but also a mm-hmm. lot of forgiveness and empathy. And I and and that and I, again, like I'm saying that because I don't necessarily see it in, even in the new music world that I operate in, mostly with so right. percussion. Like, there's a lot of people mm-hmm. online being like, "You said this, blocked," and I'm like, "No, I get it. You're upset. Totally understand." But like, I've been in countless steel bands, and no one ever says you're blocked. Get out of here. They'll no. they'll call somebody no. out. But it's like very quickly is the arm wrapped back around and everybody's brought back in. I'm curious, am I misreading something or is that like, is that something that I've sort of 
that I'm pointing out that is even remotely accurate. <laughs> nah, you're definitely accurate in um, what you're saying. Like, like again, like I was saying, it's a steel band is like your extended family. It's like your brothers and sisters um, in a home away from home. So, of course, with your family, you fight, you argue, you have disagreements. But you would never ban your brother. You would never banish your sister or whatever. You you won't see eye to eye at every waking moment. But when you have disagreements, uh, cooler heads do prevail. And you sit down and you discuss, like, your point of view and my point of view. And we come to this understanding, okay, well, you know, maybe what Josh was saying was right. You know, I, I never really thought about it that way. I never really looked at it that way. And um, maybe we could try that and see how it goes. You know, there's nothing wrong with trying something once. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Then maybe we could go another route. But um, no, it's definitely like a togetherness. It definitely is this family atmosphere, this um, this bond, this vibe. And like I said, the bonds and, 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 and the togetherness that's built, they last forever they they go on outside of the um the steel band world yeah. and is definitely that togetherness yeah well can you i think i think that's a good sort of pivot point to your work with bso and and or just bso's work in general and how i met because mm-hmm. that was the the sort of i want to say big tent because that isn't quite the right word i think but like the the willingness for the entire brooklyn pan community to be like let's get a consensus on one band and take that as a representative to trinidad that to me was like, oh, wow, like this is a group of people that aren't afraid to band together and to put aside like, first of all, there's 10 or 15 rival bands that are all getting together <laughs> in the same band. Like and mm-hmm. just historically speaking, since the, you know, even as recent as the 50s, that would have been cause for violence. You know, like like historically speaking to me, it's just an interesting data point to be like, well, that's crazy progress. And I look at BSO <laughs> as having a big voice in that approach to playing panorama music. Can you talk a little bit about sort of how did BSO come about? What was the first conversations? And you don't need to divulge any sort of palace intrigue or backroom sort of scandals as it, as it came to light. Cause I know there's drama in, in starting anything, but can you just sort of talk about like, what was your mission? Why, why did you guys even start to talk about what a BSO could or should be? Brooklyn, Brooklyn steel orchestra. Wow. Um, so BSO really came about to um, audition for AGT, America's Got Talent. Um, I don't think I knew. Oh, I mean, I've heard that, but I for, I hadn't put it, like, plugged that into the BSO story quite like you just, that's crazy. Right. Okay, I didn't know that. <laughs> right, yeah. A lot of people think, like, the BSO thing really came about for ICP, but I think BSO was always there. It, the whole concept and the idea of doing it for um, the International Conference Panorama um, was something that kind of just came about later on. Mm. Um, but the real intent and purpose was to do it for AGT, to audition for America's Got Talent. So we did have like a collective of members from other groups that came together that made a state side, per se, um, to practice and do like a rendition to go and audition for that. Um, when I was called to be a part of this group, that I was just like, you know, oh, Okay, like you know, it's, there's already groups in Brooklyn that that are practicing and they have arrangers all over. So I'm, in my head, I'm just like, I'm not sure how this is gonna work. But you know, I'm always willing to try something new. Don't knock it till you try it. So I'm like, well, I'm down. Um, and we did it, and um, 
it didn't really work out. Um, mm. You know, we didn't really get called to be a part of the show. Mm-hmm. And then along comes this, uh, the ICP. And then now um, the committee kind of started to form the uh, process of bringing in players and the concepts around it, how the, um, the arrangers were going to work together and kind of how we were going to go about practicing. Because you have to remember, too, um, ICP in 2015 happened at the height of always tell people this. It happened at the height of New York Panorama. and Like two we were, weeks before, right? Yeah, yeah. We were in Trinidad two weeks before. And, you know, when you really... I don't think in the, t- in the moment of it all happening, I think people were just... The committee did a real good job of planning and organizing. The players did a real good job. Um, the three arrangers, Mark Kendall, Odie, they did a, a good job. And, of course, yourself and um, Jerry... You guys did a good job. But I felt like a lot of it was kind of, well, we're just going to get to the bridge and we're going to see what type of bridge we have to cross and we're going to devise a plan and cross that bridge as best as possible. Um, It happened, like I was saying, at the height of New York Panorama. And when you really think of that, like New York Panorama is a a thing with musical arrangers, putting out their ideas, their creativity, a part of them, their arrangement in this, in you know, a part of them in this arrangement. And for bands that in New York are very competitive when it comes to the New York panorama to say, okay, a contingent, a contingency of players from each respective band. And you, when you look at the players that consisted of BSO, to me, I would say, a lot of those players were core players mm-hmm. from their respective bands. I would say that take, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So to take these core players now, panorama season, when bands should be practicing, take three arrangers that had their own responsibilities to work with their respective groups and to ask them to practice. And then to take a band like Crossfire in their practice space and for them to put aside what they needed to do, which their goal and their focus was panorama at that time and asked them, hey, well, we're going to take a contingency of New York players, bring them here to your pan yard and practice on your pan in the height of panorama season was something which is like, it was like, wow, you know. Mm-hmm. I really felt like at that time, like there was a lot of love and a lot of unity in it was something is the reason i asked the question about sort of the culture within a steel band like relationships to me just if i were just on the outside like squinting at the steel band community like i would say Mm -hmm. relationships are highly prioritized they're not they're not uncomplicated again i want to keep saying this like um nobody's perfect everybody everybody gets frustrated with everybody at some point but Mm -hmm. it never is at the it's never at the expense of a relationship Bridges are very right. rarely burned, if at all. Like it's a, it takes a lot to be like, nope, I'm done with you. And I feel like like <laughs> like Dougie was somebody who was running a band and made a compromise, made a sacrifice. Yeah, that I agree. allowed both things to coexist. He also facilitated a lot of relationships in Trinidad with mm-hmm. with Junior Regrello and Skiffle Bunch to help make mm-hmm. that happen. It's like. This, there's everybody's sort of connecting sort of cables to make sure the right. power can turn on. Right. And I feel like, right. like Dougie, right. all of us, you, everybody, despite complications we may have had in little moments, it feels like that's a very high priority um, in the scene. And mm-hmm. I've, I've always sort of like, that's always been the first thing I notice is like, oh, wow, 
that's a really that's really high up on the list. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like BSO is sort of a natural extension of all of that. Right. Right. Um, um, I'm I'm curious. Um, the so BSO goes to Trinidad. You get you come in fourth place out of 23 bands, um, and of the foreign bands, BSO came was the first place of all the foreign bands. The next three bands right, were all Trinidad right. bands. Were all Trinidad right. bands, which was sort of a big coup in Trinidad because not only was it a foreign band of most. I mean, there are folks from Trinidad there. It's not like it was all non-Trinidadians, but right. three foreign arrangers, none of whom were born in Trinidad, all have descent from Trinidad and or the Caribbean in one way or another, but. Like it was three foreigners too. Like if you were in Trinidad, they call Kendall and Mark and Odia for, like foreigner, foreign arrangers. Right. Then they yep. came that high. They beat Bugsy. And like, like I remember, I would just remember everybody on that stage being like, like that was just the face, you know, like, <laughs> and um, can you talk about that moment a little bit? Like it's again, it was never, it never felt like, like anybody was rubbing it in anybody's faces. It was just this weird moment of outpouring of support. A Japanese band played and it sounded exactly just to say it. It sounds terrible, but it sounds like a Japanese band playing calypso music. Like, <laughs> but but they got a standing ovation just like BSO did. Like, and it was and yeah. and like you guys were just as supportive of them as they were of you. And I I just felt mm-hmm. like that moment was amazing. Can you can you just talk about that moment on stage a little bit? That moment on stage. Uh, wow, I remember being on stage and. Um, the results starting to call. Um, I don't. Re- I don't remember in that day <clears throat> really hearing any other band, but I knew what we did on stage. So I, I felt like when the results started calling, if anything was to happen, maybe you know we would make it somewhere in the middle of all the bands because I knew the competition was there. So I remember they started, and I think they reached like fifteen, and I. I turned and I was like, wait a minute. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't hear BSO. And um, we reached 10 now. And I was like, wow, like we're in the top 10. And Josh would like every band that called from 10 go down. I felt like it was like in anticipation of the New Year's Eve ball going to drop. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And for me, I think as five number five hit, I was I was already celebrating because I was like it was a victory because I felt like um, no one I don't know what people really thought, but I, I I didn't think like for myself going into the competition that we were just going there for the experience. We were just going there to say like okay, well we went and you know this is an experience something to put. On the, on the uh, on the list down like it was a great experience or whatever. So to hear when fourth called, it was all pandemonium at that point. Um, we knew like the hard work had paid off. We celebrated like you know for us it was first. Um, I remember a lot of the work and the time and the effort and the planning and the events that we we put in. So when our name was called finally. It was just like all that emotion, all that adrenaline, everything was, it was worth it. 
you know, it was really worth it. It was, it was a great moment. It was really a great moment. Yeah, and I've great. seen the look on the Rangers' faces and then also Dougie. Like, uh, just Dougie had this big old smile on his face, and he just was walking around with, like, his chin up, his gut out, yeah. and just sort of, like, yes. just strutting like a peacock around that stage, yes. you know? <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> um, yes, you know it. You got it to and, a T, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, yes. and, you know, and the other thing, too, I, I want to point out here that um, – or I want to ask you, part of the BSO group were three of my NYU students, Sean Parham, Kareeme, uh, um, uh, Luz Kareeme, Santa, Santa Coloma, and Rob Guilford. And I am, like, those were not, they're not three mainstays in the Brooklyn pan scene. They're not crack shots in any of the bands. They're three of my students. And I'm kind of curious, the Brooklyn pan scene, since Kendall introduced me to it in Crossfire, and Dougie in particular, has always thrown the door wide open to my students, who are often predominantly white, have when they come to NYU have next to no experience, if any, of, with steel band. But never once has anybody in the in in the Brooklyn Pan scene been like, "Nah, prove yourself first, then you can come in." And I've always just wondered, like, what what is your personal view on on uh, when I say foreigners? That's maybe the, the the only that is what I'm called when I play in a steel band. Um, and it's not always a derogatory term. I'm, I'm curious for you, like, what is your viewpoint? How does that, what does that mean to you when you see three totally random white pale faces walk in the pan yard and just sort of like, and I, I'm asking the dumb question here. So please know I'm, I'm, no. I, I, it sounds like I have an agenda here, but I'm, I'm just kind of curious. What is your, what are your thoughts on that? What does that mean to you? What doesn't it mean to you? Like when you see three people who maybe have no experience, jump headfirst into that scene. It, it means their family too. Um, they're, they're one of us. Um, I'll give you a brief story. I remember when we, um, when we went to ICP and we were staying in the, um, the resort and I had a, I I think at that point I probably went from two rooms already and Sean and Robert and Kareemi, they took me in. So I, I ended up staying with them the whole trip. So, uh, foreigners is, just their family, mm-hmm. skin, complexion, no matter nationality, background, um, language, barriers. They're, they're all family. Come in, you play pen, whatever range of instrument you may play, you're, you're family, one of us. Um, you need something, you need someone to talk to, you need someone to, to shoulder the cry. We're here for you. We're here for each other. We support each other. We push each other. We motivate each other. We're all family. Um, like I said earlier, there's always time in this in the steel band um culture you won't see eye to eye just like anything else but we love one another so we're always welcoming when it comes to pen like so there's these anyone is always viewed as family as far as i see it well that that approach has something i've always felt since i was 20 going to trinidad um and meeting a Mm -hmm. total stranger in phase two's yard um i felt that same feeling um and again i may be blind blindfolded here and like not understand that that maybe this is only unique to steel bands and i'm just missing everybody here but (laughs) but if if uh if folks are are wondering what it's like to enter a community of which you are the minority if you're white walking into it like i can tell you firsthand there is no safer place as long as you're entering with humility and humbleness in a genuine curiosity Mm -hmm. and interest there's no safer place than a steel band i guarantee everybody in the world. I would agree. Um, I would agree. Well, Wayne, let me, let me move on. I want to, so after ICP and, and correct me if I've got the history, the, the history, the history wrong here. Um, you then pay, peso sort of, uh, there was a seed planted here and then peso 
exploded onto the scene and kind of just was like clipped everybody at the knees one year. And I, I remember watching you guys and being like, Oh no, where did they come from? You know, it wasn't a humong- <laughs> it wasn't a humongous band. It was brand new. No. You guys were I, I'm just saying all the words like soup. I think I feel like you guys were scrappy. Like you had uniforms that looked like you made because you you like you spent <laughs> you spent more you spent more time rehearsing. On, and Andre's music is really tricky. Like that shit mm-hmm. is not easy. Yeah. And so like no. I, like you guys just came onto the scene like the bad news bears and we're like here we go. And you got second. And you, I like second, that movie, by yeah, the way. Yeah, you got, and you got second place. And I'm curious, can you talk a bit, a little bit about Peso and sort of like what what starting starting a steel band like like that <sighs> was like from ground up? I remember every time seeing you, and you just had this look on your face, like because oh, <laughs> you were always running around. Uh, um, starting the steel band from the ground up, Peso um, started in 2016. Uh, it it was a fun experience because. You never really knew what was coming next. Um, so Peso is a new name, but a, a lot of the members have been around the pan scene for a while. A lot of the members came from Pantonic, um, Adlib, Sonatas, and we came together to kind of do do things differently. Mm-hmm. Um, that point in time, 2015, um, transitioning into 2016, uh, we sort to look to try to do things a little bit different to um, change how things were viewed, how things were done. So that brought about Peso. Um, When we sat down, we spoke about it. We weren't really looking, well, several people weren't really looking for us to tackle Panorama right off the bat. Um, But I knew once that first meeting happened, and let's just say, Panorama was off the table, off, off from the talks off the table. A lot. It seemed like to me a lot of the members had lost interest. Like, okay, well, we're just going to do um, stateside. But for members, Panorama is a thing like, it's kind of like a, a kid looking forward to Christmas. If, if if For me to put it into words, it's like, no Panorama this year. It's kind of like, no Christmas, no gifts. Mm. Like, how dare you say such a thing, you know? So, um, <laughs> like, even if you don't believe in Santa, like, people still look forward yeah, to the you, gifts. you, you know? want to know if you're going to wake up on December 25th and open a gift, yeah, open yeah. some gifts. <laughs> you you want to know that, you know? So um, it was like, okay. Uh, I remember going into January of that year and um, BSO and Skiffle were already, they had started the collaboration of working together in Trinidad that year. And I got a, I got a phone call. I was going to work, and um, it was Mervyn Rudder, a.k.a. Morby, and he was saying to me, you know, how's everything going in terms of planning and preparation? So in my head, it's like January. So I'm thinking he's talking about BSO and Skiffle. So I'm like, hey, everything is going good. You know, those guys are down there working, so I'm coming, coming, coming together well. And he stopped me. He was like, no, 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 no. no I'm like, I'm talking about your band. So I'm like, my band? Like, hmm? So he was like, yeah, Peso. And I'm like, oh, Moby, you know, um, I don't think you heard, like, you know, not really looking to do Panorama first year. And he kind of, he he put the bug in my ear, like, listen, you know, if you guys really want to go Panorama this year, I can help. You know, I could make things happen. And um, let's see where, you know, I can lend you instruments and stuff like that. I know it's hard in the first year. And I was like, nah, okay. So long story short, I ended up, this is my first time ever, I ended up going to, um, Trinidad for semis. 
So I went down there for semis. It was a great experience. My first time ever. I enjoyed it. And I was to come back for finals. Funny enough, I was to travel that day, I believe, with like uh, Anthony Sharp, uh, Sheldon Hoyt, and a couple other people. And it just worked out that everybody ended up missing their flight because semis was the day before. So I got to the airport now and I was um, on a flight. I was sitting next to, I was on the same flight with uh, Adrian Lavelle, Mm -hmm. Kern, and uh, Andre White. So we got on the plane now. Was this when Skiffle was doing um, Good Morning? Was that the next year? Yes. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. So I got on the flight and I was in the window seat. um, And then next thing you know, up comes Andre. He sits down at the um, the aisle. And I'm like, it's kind of weird. (laughs) I was like, okay. You know, um, so we're talking. And then after a while, the guy comes and um, he sits down between us. And Andre and I are both talking over the guy back and forth. So the guy looked and he was like, hey, you guys know each other? Would you like to sit next to each other? So we're like, yeah. And we sit down next to each other and we spoke spoke about um, possibly working together for the panorama. And again, uh, the rest is history. Like, you know, we started a lot of the, the planning stages, the preparation stages, um, getting everything together. And it was it was a lot of trials and tribulations, um, a lot of work, planning uh, that the committee put in, the players put in and to see, to get off what you saw on stage in 2016 was amazing. It was really amazing. Well, what was, um, you know, after the first year, um, you know, you're kind of like the dog that caught the car. Like you, you you're like, we're going to do this. Right. And then you're like, Oh, we did it. And now like <laughs> then the next year, January rolls around, you have to start thinking you have, now you have to put up or shut up. You got to like, you got to defend your, your, your sort of territory that you, 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 you took. 2017. The first year. So what, what, what were the pressures in the second year that you didn't have to think about in the, in the first year, if if any? Uh, the pressures the pressures in the second year was kind of like okay, so yeah, the momentum is up there. It's like it's no more surprise. It's like these guys are serious. So at that point, it was kind of like first place or nothing, because you come out and you you know you come out and you you hit so high, second place. It was just like there's no place to go but up which was first place. So I think going into that second year, um, we were focused. We were motivated because at the time, um, Rattles was a band that was, they were leading the route out here. And we felt like to help solidify our name, the only thing to do was be ones to actually beat Rattles. And I felt like that year, 2017, we were focused. We were committed um, we were goal driven and it was just one thing on the agenda. So it wasn't the second year compared to the first year. I don't believe there was that much more pressure. Hmm. Um, the first year it was, it was so much to do because we already stated from our early, what the intention was to come out for Panorama. And it was like, you had so much to do. You had to, try to get instruments. You had to try and get racks, which we didn't have. You had to try and get players. Players, you know, they going by what they know or, or like what, what your history says. And we had nothing to go by. So we had to do all these things and try to make the goal of making it to Panorama as compared to like, okay, well, we're already out there. Right. Now players going to want to come and play here. You know, we just got to focus in even more and just, meet this one criteria, this one goal. 
Yeah. I mean, um, it, so what's, do you know where things stand with this upcoming August? Like, have there been any decisions made from, I know Watica is in a, there's a lot of issues they're dealing with right now that we don't necessarily need to get into in terms of their own internal issues, but have, what's the latest on Brooklyn Panorama? Cause normally it's the Saturday before Labor Day, um, over Labor Day weekend. And I'm, do you know anything further? Uh, I really don't. Uh, there's so much news just floating around out there. Um, from a while back, I kind of just told my um, we're going to take the year off and just mm-hmm. everybody just try to relax, stay safe, do what you could, you know, um, take care of yourself, take care of your family. So as far as what's happening, I can't really speak for what's going on outside with the uh, West Indian Carnival Day Association, but I can speak for my organization. And I just told them like this year is just like an off year for us. Yeah. It's hard to, I mean, like your Christmas analogy, like it's, it's such a internal struggle to be like, I'm looking forward to Christmas, but if I open Mm -hmm. this gift, I might give the entire band coronavirus, you know, like. Exactly. You know, it's such a, such a hard. Yeah, it is hard. Cause you got all these young kids and they, you know, like you, like you were saying, you came up through that, through the stage side, the, the after the Mm -hmm. classes, you know, and when those aren't in session, like there's a lot of kids who are just not able to sort of tap into that system right now. And it's, it's right. a real, I mean, as somebody who's running a band like yourself, I can imagine you having like all of the things like the guilt, the feelings of like, you're leaving these kids hanging. What can you do? On the other hand, y- you don't want to get a whole group of people together and get everybody sick, right. you know, like, so how you mm-hmm. walk those lines. So anyway, I, I'm just asking where things are at now. And again, like, I don't, you know, you guys, you need to think of the, the safety and health of your band first. Um, yeah. But I'm with you on the sort of, of I'm grieving <laughs> for it already ahead of time. But um, oh, so can, can you remind me, where do you, where, where do you work for? What do you do for a living? Um, so I'm a, currently I'm a field service supervisor um, for the fire department. What does that um, mean? So we handle the dispatch operations and emergency services. Uh, it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. As you know, the uh, fire department, they don't, they don't shut down. They don't stop. So um, anything goes wrong with their system in a firehouse that they have to receive their jobs over or the uh, dispatch system that they have to send the jobs out on. We're there for them. We have to, um, maintain and service that and make sure there's there's no outage or no uh outage that's out you know for any particular amount of time so right now during this pandemic we've been out there um trying to stay safe uh they made sure to um set us up with remote access and stuff like that to uh to have us work as work at home as much as possible yeah well um if you don't mind me asking, I mean, there's a the current state of affairs right now. There's a lot of people really upset for absolutely valid reasons, and a lot of people also completely confused for a lot of valid reasons. I mean, everybody's looking at Facebook, and it's absolutely <laughs> a fire hose of vast, mostly misinformation, but and a lot of anger yeah. and a lot of resentment, yeah, all justified. And I, I don't want to imply that people aren't entitled to their feelings at all. Like, absolutely. Um, I'm curious though. I really there's there's so much noise um, that like I just I want to like from me to you. There's some obvious things that I just will never understand ever in my entire life. Um, I can empathize, but I'll never know what it's like to be afraid to be pulled over. I mean, I'm afraid to be pulled <laughs> over when I get pulled over. Don't I mean I have anxiety. It's just not the same anxiety that 
you know, people with different skin color. I'm generalizing here, but the anxiety that they might feel is different from, from, than the ones I feel. I experience, I, I have racist thoughts. I'm not going to sit here and lie to you and pretend that I'm immune to, to judging people out of fear. I walk through Brooklyn and Trinidad by myself on a regular basis, and I'm, I would be lying to your face, Wayne, if I didn't have the feeling to look over my shoulder. It's called being a human. But I feel right. like I've practiced enough to be like, nope, that's my lizard brain talking. I'm going to push that down and not address, mm-hmm. not acknowledge it. Um, right. So I just I want to hear your experience because I don't think you and I have ever talked about it on the, on this level. And if you wouldn't mind me sharing it with me, like what don't and I only want you to speak for yourself. Like I don't I hate when people try to expect for Wayne to speak on behalf of black people <laughs> or on behalf of men <laughs> or on behalf of black women or and. I want you to talk about to, to yourself, what are some things that I don't understand about your personal, when you walk through life, that you could explain to me in a way that um, that you could explain? Or just talk to me. What don't I understand and, and how can I, how can folks understand it better? I think, um, I think a big part of what's going on and things that I've experienced is uh, media oriented um media to me i feel like media kind of paints this picture of every person of color you may see every person of color you may come across you you don't have to know them you and them don't have to share a conversation um have a good morning but just automatically it's put into people's minds that they're thug or their animal. And um, there's a lot of people, like, you can't just go based on your, their first appearance. Like, everyone has their style. Everyone has their swagger, per se. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really up to you and us as individuals to really get to sit down and know someone and understand someone. Like, over the years, getting to know you and being around you and always having conversations and laughs and sharing memories. I know you, I, I, you know, I don't think of you as a racist, you know, unless that's something you come and you, you say to me, Hey, well, you know, this, that, and the third, but I feel like a lot of things is media oriented. So it puts this fear in people right away. Like, you know, sometimes I've seen already, I'm walking on the block, and um, I'm walking down the street and someone is someone may see me and all of a sudden we're getting 10 feet away. They stop and they looked across the street. And then when you look, you look back, they didn't go into a house or anything, but they're still going up the block. <laughs> it's just because, OK, well, here comes this guy. He looks threatening. He looks scary. He looks like someone that may do me bodily harm. I don't want to be on the same side of the street as, as him. You know, I've, I've, I've seen it. I've experienced it. Um, I've experienced it uh, at a very early age, um, having, being out there driving and driving a particular type of car and being pulled over and having an officer of the law tell you, oh, well, whose car is this? You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> well, hey, officer, why am I being pulled over? Like, because this didn't look like your car. Sheldon Sheldon Hoyt, I did a podcast with him, and he he mentioned that 
um, he got pulled over. He was dressed. He was going to church, I think. And he and he and his friend were dressed to the nines, you know. And I think it was a we- a wedding. A wedding, yeah, said, yeah, uh, yeah, a wedding, yeah. And he said the first thing the cop said to him is, "This will be easier if you just tell me where where you stole this car." And and and, and Wayne went, or and and Sheldon was like, "Here's my registration. Like, this will be easier if you just read this, you know." Like, and mm-hmm. I the. Like I'm try, I try, I'm trying real hard to not jump to the emotion of rage when I hear shit like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm curious, like, how do you? What is your? How do you? Like you said, was your response actually? Why'd you pull me over? Like, what? What goes through your head in that very moment when someone asks you like that? Something like that. I mean, my first response to myself is like, "Are you?" You know, I want to curse, but are you serious? Like, mm-hmm. you don't have to have a legit reason to pull me over or why you're stopping me and why you're questioning me. And then you take my, you take my, my uh, information, you go and you run it. After 20 minutes of having me sit down there, you don't know if I had to go to a job interview. You don't know if I'm, I'm late for work. Um, if I had to be somewhere by a particular time, but now you, you're holding me up to come back, hand me my information, and then just tell me, have a good day. No no reasoning, no nothing. Like, hey, you made a wrong turn. Hey, you didn't stop or whatever. Or some of the best ones, too, I think, to be stopped and then told that you did something that you didn't do. And they're, they're telling you that you did something that you didn't do. What, be specific with, with your experience. What happened there? Uh, I had... Cops pulled me over a time. I was, uh, I just dropped home one of the players. Um, I actually believe it was Brandon, Brandon Waldrop. I dropped him home and uh, off, of his, off of his block where he lives, I made a, a left and then there's a light. And then I made another left to head to Albany to make another left. I don't know where the cops were. But there's a stop sign right at Brandon, right at the foot of Brandon's block. And I stopped. I looked because there's traffic passing in front of me going up, I think is uh, Troy. Mm-hmm. I stopped and then I made the left and I went to the light. Now, the cops, when I reached the light at St. John's, the cops are sitting behind me. So I'm sitting there, Josh, I'm not on no cell phone, I'm not texting, I'm not doing anything. I'm just sitting, sitting at the light. This is not. After a rehearsal, and I'm waiting to go home. Light changes. And, like, I, you know, like, I don't know. I don't know if people really understand this, but as a black person in America, you're driving a car, and then you see the police pull it behind you. And I don't know. To me, there's this kind of way. I've been I've been driving for a while. So this is kind of way when I, I know they're going to pull up, pull me over, they pull up, like, dead behind your bumper, like, no room. So... I'm watching them in the mirror and I'm, I'm saying in my head, like, Wayne, they're getting ready to pull you over. So when the light changed, I waited at the light. I waited for them to put on the sirens because I already kind of submitted myself. And um, no sirens came on. So I was like, okay, indicated. And I proceeded to go to St. John's. I got halfway down St. John's. Here comes a police car flying with their sirens on. So I'm like, okay, the speed these guys are going with, they, they have to, they, they got a call. They're going to an emergency. They're going to something. So I reached the St. John's now, and then they pull up 
behind me. So I'm like, are they trying to pull me over? Are they trying to go somewhere waiting for me to turn? Seeing that I'm indicating again. So I uh, turned off of St. John's onto Albany going back down. So they turn behind me now and I'm like, oh, well, clearly they're, they're pulling me over. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to drive till I see somewhere safe. I could pull in and they could pull in and do whatever out of the, out of the way of traffic. So um, I pull up, I have my music playing. Cop, first thing he says to me, turn down your music. Okay. Turn down music. I look at him. I said, officer, um, what are you pulling me over for? Can I ask like, why are you pulling me over? And he um, says to me, Oh, well, you didn't stop at the stop sign. So he's telling me I didn't stop at the stop sign at the foot of Brandon's block. And then he's telling me now, when I reached at the light by Troy, I didn't indicate. With them behind me, I did not indicate to turn onto St. John's to make the left. So in my head, I'm like, so, you know, I'm first thinking like, why when I indicate? So I looked at him. I was like, officer, like I was looking at you guys in my rearview mirror behind me. And I was like, I know you guys are behind me. Why when I indicate? I did indicate turning on to St. John's. He's like, no, you didn't. So he was like, at that point, license registration. So I'm like, okay. And um, they had me out there for probably about 30 minutes, 20, 25, 30 minutes. And then after to not give me anything, no ticket, no summons, no nothing. Just like, okay, drive safe. You go through those things and you see those things and it's just, it's, it's, I don't know. Can I ask you something too? I mean, you, you mentioned that you work for the fire department and, and I know that the fire department is not law enforcement, but in terms of bodies of organizations in a society that are tasked with protecting said society, um, I mean, there's many complications with that statement I just made, but let's just for lack of a for, for this statement, the fire department is meant to protect everybody from fires, right? And the police department right. is meant to, meant to protect you from supposedly danger, right? Like serve, yes, <laughs> they're protect to protect and serve, right? Um, so I'm curious. Like right now, there's a lot of discussion around like defunding the police, um, abolishing the police. I see, you know, the whole spectrum of things is covered. I see folks being like, "Wait a minute, let's not defund the police. We need the police. Let's reform mm-hmm. the police." All of those discussions, right? You being someone who does actually work in the system, for lack of a better word, in terms of like you are adjacent to that, to law enforcement in a way on a daily basis. And I'm curious, like, how has that dissonance sort of how have you been thinking about that stuff in your head? What do you see on a daily basis in the system that um, you think maybe folks might aren't aren't thinking about right now? Like, let's say I come at you and I'm like, Wayne, we got to get rid of the police. I don't care what you say. We got to get rid of them. Close them down. <laughs> we'll figure it out. Like, but right now, this is the problem. We got to get rid of them. That's not what I personally think. But uh, I'm just curious. Mm-hmm. If I say that to you, what is what are your thoughts about that? If we were trying to figure this out together, what would your response be to that? I don't. I don't think to 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 the police. I think uh, some form of reform and um, methods to um, kind of police the process of what's going on. Like, let's just say, all right, a rookie cop is hired today, right? 
it just uh, to be clear, Wayne, I do not. If there's something we get into here that you feel is is something that you're not you don't want to talk about for your own personal job reasons or whatever, please just tell me. I don't want to talk about. No, nah, that's <laughs> it's okay. It's fine. Um, I feel like if a, a, a cop works five years on a job, it would like I think some things like a reform, like maybe okay, five years is an evaluation point. So we're going to take this officer. He, he started five years on a job. Let's look at his file. Let's look at if he has any 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 complaints of uh, harassing citizens, um, brutalizing people, um, anything of that matter. And let's go and see. Let's look in depth as to why this is happening. Maybe we could do psych evaluations, maybe you could do ride-alongs or something like that um, every couple of years to see. Because an officer brutalized, it, it, it happens too many times where you see, okay, you see this, in, this incident on the news, and it's like, okay, when they look back, oh, well, this cop has a history of doing these things. So before it gets too out of control, there should be maybe some form of a timeline to be like, okay, a five years, every five years or every two years, let's, let's do background checks to see, um, you know, psych evaluations to see if they're still mentally fit to handle this job or whatever the case may be. I mean, what are, I would like to ask the question, what are the qualifications? What are the actual credentials mm-hmm. for one to make, a law enforcement, you know. I think that's so, a, it's an interesting statement. I mean, uh, sorry to interrupt, but the like I've been thinking about the bad apple argument a lot. Like I hear it from mm-hmm. I hear it from you know the part of the country where I grew up a lot. Um, you know, I know people in law enforcement. I have former family members Me who are in law, all, you know all of that. Mm-hmm. And the argument I hear, and I don't think it's a I don't think they're wrong. Like the bad apple argument. It's like of course, yeah, yeah. There's definitely a lot of great cops. Totally, absolutely, they are great cops. But, they are. There are, and yes, there are absolute bad apples. But let me just play this analogy out for you. I fly a lot. And okay. if, if we have a lot of pilots, right? And one of those pilots, once a month, shows up to the flight, blitzed out of his mind, and has a history of this. Now, it is true that that drunk cop or drunk pilot might have flown the plane safely on those days in the past. But if once a month that cop or that pilot, sorry, pilot. <laughs> flies that plane into the side of a mountain because he's drunk, then, yeah, the bad – yes, we can say there are lots – every pilot – most pilots are good and there's a few bad apples. I'm sorry. Right. I'm not getting on that plane until you figure that out. That's too big exactly. of a – it's too big of a risk. You have too many people's mm-hmm. lives and I think of cops – and like law enforcement, you are you are one of the pilots of our society in one – you're not the only one, but you're one of them. And like if – I don't, I'm sorry. I'm just not going to get on a plane if I think one of you randomly might show up and and exact some revenge on me because you're you're damaged from something prior. You have trauma, or you were raised by mm-hmm. a family who told you mm-hmm. black people were shitty, or you did all you mm-hmm. know, or something. You know, I just right. feel like the bad apple argument is like we need to have it like yes, and <laughs> like we can't have bad apples in the police department. We need to have a system that. We have a way of sort of teasing them out so that the fabric mm-hmm. of our police is actually as healthy as it looks like we want it to look, you know? Um, right. Again, I'm not a cop. I don't know how to do that very well, but I do feel like 
us having discussions about it is probably healthier than getting on and just yelling at each other. <laughs> and, right. And definitely. 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 Um, definitely. Well, Wayne, I, I want to let you go here. I've been keeping you for an hour now and I can't, you know, time, <laughs> time always flies when we're chatting here. But, um, first of all, you're welcome back on the podcast anytime. Um, I think I've said that Thank to you. you many times, but, um, I like yes. repeat guests <laughs> because there's no way anyone's going to get to know you over one hour. Um, right. and I want your voice to be here many, many times. And I would like to have you on enough that we actually have a fight online and have to work something out. I think it'd be really great. Um, but Wayne, I really am genuinely grateful for your time. Um, I'm grateful for your work in the pan community. Like, uh, I say, I, I say it to you all the time. You're one of the biggest advocates for the art form in Brooklyn. Um, and just for me to you, I'm very grateful for you sharing your story to me. There's a lot of stuff online where people are saying it's not black people's responsibility to teach white people anything. And there's a part of me that, again, I understand that hmm. statement. I get your feeling. You are entitled to that feeling. But I've learned from I've learned about other cultures by that very culture, like Dougie did, like Junior did, like Cliff Alexis did, and like Kendall did, just by simply like opening the door and saying, come in. And I'm grateful for you, Wayne, for for allowing that same sort of, of grat- uh, graciousness towards me. So thank you for that. Um, do you have – is there any final um, – like if somebody wants to learn more about BSO or Peso or Andre or any of the things that you're passionate about musically, where could folks go online to find out more about what you're doing? Um, so you can go on Facebook and uh, put in Pan Evolution. We have a Facebook. We also have a IG, Panda Evolution IG. Uh, you can follow us. Uh, we have a lot of videos up on, on YouTube. We're actually um, working on our own YouTube channel. So we have a lot of material out there. Um, you could go and look back on um, different events and shows that we did. We did the show with you guys at NYU. The Provost, we've done something uh, with... Andy Eo and the Knights. Um, that's also up there. We've, they have different concerts and shows. We've done the Halloween parade twice now. Um, so all that stuff is out there. All the different panorama arrangements um, that Andre has arranged there, they're also up there on YouTube. So you guys are free to go and check it out. Also like to thank you, Josh, for um, taking the time to have me on your podcast today. Like I'm very appreciative and thankful and humble for the opportunity to um sit down here for an hour and it doesn't bother me. I'm I'm really thankful for this. I appreciate that. Well, it's it's mutual, buddy. And like I said, um, you're welcome anytime. Anytime. If you just want to sit and stare at me for an hour, we can do that. <laughs> we can do that too. I don't care. I'll call. I'll definitely call you. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'll call you. Uh, all right, I'll buddy. You. Uh, love you. Uh, stay safe and uh, uh, take care. Okay. All right. Love you too, man. Take See you, care. Buddy. Bye. All right. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, this podcast was brought to you by Liquid Drum. Liquiddrum.com, down in Waco, Texas. Percussion, education, humor, merch. It's all there. Check it out. Liquiddrum.com. And also, Dunleavy Pans. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums I play and teach on. You can find them at Dunleavypans.com. D-U-N-L-E-V-L-E-A-V-Y Pans.com. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye.